Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome back to another episode of Believe in the Press Row, a, uh, a hot and summer, even, summer evening here. Jonah Siegel coming to you, and uh, my next guest is someone who I've always wanted to talk to. He, uh, he was on the Toronto TV. I'm sure he was on TV. He was definitely on the airwaves. And he was, in my opinion, the truth-sayer. He was, uh, people may not have always wanted to hear it. They may not have always agreed with it. But he was well-known for first playing for the Blue Jays and then being as part of the broadcast team. He is Dirk Hayhurst. Dirk, how are you? I'm well. How are you? Awesome. It is uh, nice to hear your voice again. We, we, I can say that we, me, the, me, the we, miss it. Um, <laughs> So much going on always in the world of sports. You, you represented a breath of fresh air all the time. And it's always, you know, it's been an interesting time with the Blue Jays in baseball. But uh, let's put that aside for a second. How are you and your family doing these days? Uh, we're well. You know, there's a, it's, a, it's a brave new world, a, a weird world, and a time of big change. And I'm, I'm just happy that we're healthy and relatively for the moment unscathed by uh, the pandemic and all of the economic fallout. Um, uh, we've had some close calls, but you know, so far so good. So you've um, very interesting career, right? Like you, you, you one way to put it. <laughs> no, but, no, no, but listen, like you went, you, you know, you grew up in, in Ohio, uh, went to Kent state university, you played college ball at Kent state four seasons, um, worked your tail off as documented, and we'll discuss that in a minute, through the minor leagues, uh, spent some time with the Padres, then the Blue Jays, uh, and then Tampa Bay, and then, you know, got into broadcasting. You've written multiple books, one of which Keith Oberman called one of the best baseball books ever. Um, and I don't mean this negatively, but you're sitting in Ohio doing marketing or something. You're not in baseball. Why the hell not? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I was always a, a realist about my career. Um, and one of the things about me, maybe my defining trait is a blunt sense of rationality. Uh, and, you know, when I started my baseball career, I think I started it like every bright eyed player does thinking that. I'm just going to end up in the majors in a matter of weeks and I'll ride off into the sunset and I'll marry a supermodel and I'll drive a really expensive car that's terrible for the environment, live in a huge house. Kids will stop me for autographs and I'll give them a bump on the chin and must their hair and it'll be, it'll just be great. Uh, then I spent like four years consecutively at the same level in the minors and I realized, Jesus, I'm terrible. You know, I'm, I'm roster filler material. And the only thing I'm going to have to show for it is like boring stories of glory days, right? Literally, that is a line from the bullpen gospels because that song comes on in stadiums, you know, glory days. And at first it's like nostalgic and you feel like you're a pro when you hear it. And then after four years, you're like, God, this is me. This is like the foretelling of my future at a bar talking about how I came close but didn't make it. And I thought the only thing I'm going to have to show for it is these stories. So I might as well write them down. So I ended up making that book. The book became therapeutic, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, I'll spare you the gory details, but, you know, a year later, I find myself in the big leagues. And I, and I thought, you know, same thing. This isn't going to last. 
Uh, I'm not that great. I'm lucky to be here. I want to stay as long as I can, of course, but I'm, I'm, I'm a garden variety right-handed pitcher who spends most of his time mopping up spilt innings out of the bullpen. You know, the reason most people remember me is because I, I was a guy who had the audacity to run his mouth about players much more talented than him after spending very little time in any kind of leverage or key situation and even then struggled, right? And if, if you're a rational person, you're looking at your career and thinking it's just a matter of time before they figure me out. So I spent a lot of my time making inroads in the media and you know, learning other skills because I knew it would fizzle at some point and it did. Uh, you know, I, I had a, a meteoric little blip of fame on some big television networks, mostly because of the book and the novelty of being a player who wrote about life in baseball. But after that faded, I was just a novelty item. And uh, I milked it for everything I could get. And I think that's the big key takeaway. You know, people are like, what happened? You used to, you know, why didn't you? And I'm like, no, 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 you've got that backwards. I made the most of very, of very mediocre talent. And I'm unapologetic about that because um, if I was to believe I was deserved more, life right now would be unlivable, right? You know, I knew it was gonna end up this way eventually. So um, yeah, after it did, I was prepared to transition out, um, to go get an education, to start a real job, you know, all that stuff. It, was, it wasn't easy, you know, as, as prepared as I was, my ego still took a bruising from it, but um, I kind of, I, I think I always knew this was kind of my trajectory. So I squeezed as much as I could from it and then I threw it away and moved on. Right, but then you ended up <laughs> behind the mic. Um, and well, you're, that, that, to me, that's part of it. To me, that was part of it, you know. Well, there's, there's a difference, right? Like, okay. listen, lot, lots of people dream of playing professional sports. Very few get to do it. You did, you did get to do it. And we'll talk about the minor league experience in a minute. But you then made the transition to the booth. And I'm going to tell you that you were really good at it. Um, you didn't do it for as long as I think you could have, or in my mind, should have as a fan, what happened? Why did that part end? Playing careers, I understand. Broadcast careers, not so much. Okay, well, um, the, the honest truth is I messed up. Okay. Um, you know, there, especially in Toronto. So in Toronto, um, with Rogers, had a really good opportunity. Um, and I didn't realize how good of an opportunity or how rare that opportunity was. Uh, so I believe that I was good at it. Um, you know, I came in you and were. I was, you were I was, good at it. <laughs> thank you. I believe that I was because I believed I was, you know, I'm a player, but I was trying to incorporate stuff that at the time would have been new age for a player, you know, working in statistics and talking about probability, you know, to look at a guy like JP and Sebia, whom everyone was in love with and say, this is not going to last. And then taking it on the chin for that, or, you know, to lock horns with Greg Zahn, who just, he would just show up and start talking. It was, you know, it was no research, kind of this old guard about sports. And I was the new guard. And my thinking was, you know, I'll never have the World Series ring or the MVP or any of this stuff. What I have to do is be able to make strong, well-reasoned, well-supported points 
every time I'm put in front of a microphone and, and not be afraid to stir something up, right? I need, I need something to survive here. And that was my thinking. Um, and that's where I screwed up <laughs> because that's, that is just, it's not, uh, I mean, if you think about it, um, you know, Rogers owns access to the only major league platform in Canada. So this product needs to be sold in an undefiled manner with couched criticism and all punches pulled, right? And it used to be, they used to tell me like, you know, you need to make strong opinions. Um, you, you need to be polarizing. Uh, this is good. This is good sports entertainment. It, it would be if you didn't also own the property because then what was happening is blowback would happen from the players. Uh, they don't, you know, you, you lose access to them. Other people that are on part of your broadcast panels might lose access to them and that would bother them because that was the bread and butter. Um, you know, guys were getting agitated about it. The season was going wrong and always this kind of question of who the hell is Dirk Hayhurst to do this? Look at his career. What the hell does he know? Um, and the truth was, is I, I knew a lot of things that, um, were at the time relegated to these nerds in the back of the broadcast, you know, like that's what I was trying to wrap my head around. But what, what was really wanted was this, um, this more saccharine, um, fluffy kind of approach where we were hard, but not really. And, um, and you need to strike that balance. And I didn't strike it very well. Uh, I did it because I thought I needed to do it. And looking back, I find that if I just would have kind of played along with everyone else and been more politically correct in that respect, I probably would have had a longer career uh, with that group. And I didn't do that because I thought I was carving out a niche and I wasn't, I was carving out a tombstone. But you are like, I think your fans and the people that enjoyed listening to you respected that you weren't that. And if you became that, you would not have been you. <laughs> no, <laughs> but like there's, there's, there's lots of, for lack of a better word, homers out there that can clap and hold pom-poms and, and you don't have to be one or the other that there is middle ground. Uh, is that, is that what I mean? Should you have been more balanced? Because Dirk Hayhurst as a raw, raw Blue Jay guy going, boy, he swung out, you know, he hit into a double play, but boy, did he hit it hard. Like, that's not who you are, right? Like, if that was an inning-killing, season-finishing play where a guy, the worst thing in the world he could have done is hit into a double play, I wanted to hear you say it, and, and you did, right? Like, that's what made you different. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And – um but I think that the balance wasn't there, uh, as you say. I mean, there, there really, that is a, um, that's a collateral that you can spend only for so long, and then that's it. You're done, you know, and you can't be negative all the time. You can't make your name about, about negativity. It just so happened that I came in and one of the, that season when they spent an atrocious amount of money to get a lot of players that didn't do anything. And so there was a lot of anger around the season and there was a lot of people criticizing these guys. And honestly, it was kind of nice to be able to criticize guys that were making money that I'd never see or ever know and had talent way better than me and watch them fail. And, and it, it was kind of cathartic to see that much talent, you know, struggle. 
But at the same time, I mean, um, there was this uh, kind of overdoing it blitz of euphoria about this team that hadn't done anything. Um, and I was kind of like, this is, what do we, you know, we're getting our, like, our, we're getting so excited over something that never happened yet. Like, we, this team isn't the best team ever. I believe at one point in time, I actually said, it was like 60 games, and I said, I'd rather have the Astros that year than this team. If I could trade all of these people and get the Astros, because the Astros will have a dynasty. We have a really expensive like whiz bang firework that might not even work. That's what we have. We have hype. You are buying jerseys based on hype. And there's no, there's nothing here to get excited about, especially if they start to tank because they'll all get broken up in their piecemeal parts. And I took hell for that. And then that's what happened, you know? So I think even if you can see the writing on the wall, you need to understand how the audience consumes that, uh, how the people around you consume that. Um, it's kind of like, you know, crapping where you eat in a, in a, in a manner of speaking, you, you have to be delicate with that because you still have to make a living out of it. Um, and so I didn't, I, I, you know, it was very YOLO with me. And again, you know, I thought like this, it, the ratings were great on some of this, on a lot of the stuff that I did because it was controversial and, you know, I was, uh, I was argumentative with Zani. I really wanted Zani to like do a better, like to hold his own. I, I hated it when he'd be like, Hey, I played a long time. This is how it is. I hated that crap. Um, and I wanted to push that, but, uh, you know, I pushed myself out of a job when, by doing that. So I knew I rubbed people the wrong way doing that stuff. And, and it was just, you know, you don't know if you can trust a guy like that to kind of toe the company line. And really you, you need to know that you can, do that to someone in my position. And if they don't feel like they can, you know, if when things are going bad, go ahead, be negative, but we need to know we can push the mute button on you and you'll toe the line at some point. I don't think I ever conveyed that I would. And that was scary for them. So there's and, and that's, this is my analysis again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I don't know the inner work. I was never told, never given a reason. That's just how it kind of went down. So, so there's two, there's two ways that, I think about this as, I, as I'm listening to you. So, so, and this isn't going to be a shock, but there is a perception in the market that because the Blue Jays are owned by Rogers, that the media, especially those attached to a Rogers outlet, uh, are told or are audited or edited or muted uh, with how they cover the team. And that comes from Rogers down to the broadcast booth. What I think I hear you saying is a little different, and that is that it was actually coming from the clubhouse up to the broadcast booth. Am I hearing that well, correctly, or is it both? No, no, I don't. I mean, okay, so the the way you're phrasing it makes me feel like there's some kind of like plot, um, but the truth is, it's just the the ethos of the business. You know, um, you can criticize a player. Uh, from time to time, if you do it too much, you'll never get to talk to that player again. Um, you can criticize the Blue Jays organization from time to time. If you do it too much, even if it's warranted, you're going to get in trouble for that. You know, um, you know, I criticize things that were just beyond my right as a broadcaster to criticize. I remember once I was like, they, they had that like monster truck song or whatever that they played all the time during the interstitials. 
between innings, you know, like at the fifth inning, it was the monster truck inning and I used to hear it and I'm like, I'm watching this terrible game. Um, then I have to listen to this terrible sponsor song, you know, and I remember tweeting something about like, I don't know what's worse, this game or this song and whatever. And the next day I was in the back office getting chewed at by all the sponsor executives <laughs> or whatever about this, like, you know, um, and, uh, and I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry, but you know, I, I, I thought, people appreciated this, like, um, you know, like in inside, it, it made it more honest when you had somebody there criticizing the whole thing. It just made it more honest. It made it less manufactured. And, and I, I, I felt that from the fans, but I guess that's to put a finer point on what I'm trying to say here is that you can get away with it in moderation. Anybody who kind of like goes over the edge for too long is going to see their career dry up unless you're a superstar and you can say whatever nonsense you want. And we see that, I mean, those Fox postseason games where they just bring on huge names like Ortiz and Pedro. I love both those guys. Pedro Martinez is a phenomenal guy. I love being around him as a person, but it's clear. He just, I mean, he'll just say whatever he wants, you know, talk about, it goes off the rail. It's, it's spaghetti on the wall analysis. It's just saying stuff. Um, it's incoherent at times, but at the same time, it's Pedro. So, I mean, Charles Barkley on the NBA. Exactly. They just let him go, right? So, you know, and I think when we think that most fans, I don't mean to be insulting the fans here, but when we think most fans are like really care about accurate analysis, they don't. They don't care about it. They, you know, they care about the feel, the emotion, the connection, the player. Uh, it's very basic. It's almost religious. Um, and when you start tinkering with that or showing behind the curtain or you know, or saying things that feel uh, wantonly negative, you will get yourself in trouble. And that's, you just need to know that. And I didn't. So, you know, yes, I mean, is, is there more manufactured uh, media in the Rogers network than in other places that I've seen? Absolutely. I mean, TSN was night and day. It was not owned by that. So they didn't own the team. So it was like, you know, say whatever you want, give us the most compelling, we got to compete with these motherfuckers. So say whatever you need to say to draw their ratings to us. Right. So, so it's very different. So yeah, I do have some, I, I've worked for both of the major broadcasting teams that cover sports. I like TSN's better because there was less politics involved there, but they didn't own the team. And when you do, there's just things you have to know. So I'm not supposed to ask questions. I'm not really prepared for the answer for, but <laughs> why, aren't you, why aren't you on TSN anymore? Blue Jays just weren't worth covering at the time. So um, how that works is, uh, you know, the, I, I, I still talk to the people from TSN as friends, but um, you can only cover your competitor's property so much before it becomes a liability to you. It's advertising for them, right? So if you when they were in the World Series or trying to get the, sorry, the postseason trying for the World Series, TSN had more coverage because everybody's got to watch it and you got to go where the fans are. You got to compete in that space. But when the team's middling and they're your competitor's property and you're basically giving prime time to your competitor's property, it doesn't make a lot of good business sense. And um, you're not going to spend extra money to bring in extra talent to cover them. So uh, yeah, but I had a wonderful time there. I'd go back in a heartbeat. Honestly, I'd go back. I'd love to go back and do it again with Rogers at some point. Um, and I'd probably play along a little bit better if I did much to your chagrin, I'm sure. But, um, you know, in the fullness of time, and again, I think you have to remember, um, I got that job like fresh out of baseball. 
and fresh off the bestsellers list. I mean, you know, I had a, I had like, a, I can do anything. I can do this. I've got a plan for this. You know, I had an ego going into it and uh, I didn't quite have the stats to back it up. Right. So if I would have adjusted and made that curve a little bit better, I might still be around there, but I didn't. Well, I, I will say that TSN should hire you again. <laughs> no, they should. I mean, listen, I think Roger should too, but I, I think for a whole host of reasons, you do much better on a network that isn't owned by the home team. That's just, I think, I think they're going to get better value out of a truthsayer than on an, on a non home network. Cause I think that's fair. That's what, that's what is expected. Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but there are 30 or 29 other teams out there that could be looking for broadcasters. I mean, yes, it was great having you in Toronto, but there, I mean, you're in Ohio. Like I, I have to imagine there are networks there that would die to have somebody who can talk the talk the way, I mean, you played the game, you're, a bet, you're, you're articulate, you're smart, you're outspoken, you've now learned your lesson. Yes, I am stumping to be your agent. Um, I, I think you should be on the airwave somewhere. I, I really do. Like, I think it's, uh, dare I say, an injustice to baseball that you're not broadcasting because you're really good at it. Well, Did you talk to other teams? Um, I have not. I, I didn't have an agent. I negotiated my own contracts um, with TSN. Um, and I didn't with Rogers. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't know. It, you know. Like, I don't really understand the inner workings of the media business, to be honest. Um, there's a lot of things in play there. Uh, you know, I always thought that like life inside of a, a locker room was scandalous, but the television world, it's a whole different kind of disgusting in, in many respects. I mean, the stuff that people get away with, what they do, the money involved, um, you know, I, the politicking of it. There's just stuff that I, I don't, I don't even know. Even the agency world would be like, you know, we, we can't touch you if this other agent dropped you or, you know, I had Keith Overman's agent help me get onto TBS. Uh, and then after that, and probably very smartly, he was like, sorry, kid, got nothing for you, you know, or whatever. And after he passed on me, I guess the thinking was if like, if this fucking guy can't get you a job, <laughs> nobody ever, we're never getting you like, so I'm not going to take that on. And really, you know, when you go to these agencies uh, or when you go to, I guess, when you go to like VPs trying to get your talent in front of them, you need to go with the best. And if there's any question about the people you might be bringing there, then it's probably good business to pass on that. So I don't blame them for that at all. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I had a, I had a nice go and it dried up and I ended up doing radio hits and some postseason stuff for TSN. And then you know, that I was, I always knew that if the Blue Jays started to be terrible, the coverage just wouldn't be there. Um, and then honestly, you know, it, it became something that just was unsustainable. Like I couldn't sit around the house and watch baseball uh, with a two-year-old um, and I need health coverage and I can't freelance bill. So it was like, well, got to get a job. So I did. And I mean, that's just how it went. I, I wish it was, I, there, there really was no more drama than that. It was just a good business decision for me and my family for me to stop, to just turn the tap off and hang up the cleats, you know? And um, so hopefully that's enough information to satisfy that query. <laughs> I don't know. We're, we're going to come back because you, you said something, but I want to, I mean, we're going to pivot here just for a second before I play this clip. Um, 
Do you think that your experience toiling in the minors, which are so well documented, played into your mind in that I rode in buses and God, the stories you tell are pretty awful about what, you know, the working conditions in the minor leagues. Do you think that affected that, that when it ended with the Jays, you're like, I don't want to, like, I don't want to go work for, and this is no knock on them, the Buffalo Bisons or the Lansing Lugnuts, right? Like, I don't want to be, uh, whatever that guy's name is on that awesome TBS TV show that's really hilarious about a, a drunk baseball uh, in-stadium announcer. Do you think that had anything to do with it? Um, you mean not why I didn't go, like, do announcing or something in the minors? Yeah, like, so- you, by your own admission, like, you, you fell out, you, you finished your major league career and went right to the Blue Jays. Um, didn't work out. You know, some people might have said, like, I'll go work anywhere doing anything. I, I just want to be a broadcaster. You had a, I'm going to call it a normal, but a pretty awful experience in, 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 the major, in minor league baseball. Do you think that experience tainted it, that it wasn't, you realized that it wasn't worth it? Well, uh, it wasn't that I realized that minor league life, um, well, first of all, minor league life is horrible. Um, it's horrible in a way, in a fashion that I don't think most people really understand. And at the time, you know, I don't look at my own experiences as particularly horrible. Uh, they were just my experiences and I didn't know any better. Right. Um, you know, it was the sacrifice. It was part of tracing, chasing the dream. All kids that chase that dream have been chasing that dream since they were children. It, it rolls along through every single one of your formative years. Your identity is so steeped into it. You'd be you'd almost be committing an act of heresy against the God of baseball to think about ever doing anything other than baseball right up until the point where they no longer want you and you realize how good life is outside of that world for the first time. And you realize like, you know, being home with my family ain't so bad. (laughs) When my wife and I got married, I had just, just made it to the majors. And I think in the four or so years after that, that my career persisted, Uh, I saw her a grand total of nine and a half months in the flesh because that was the demand that baseball makes of you. You know, if you, if you have already done that once, and this might be what you're speaking of, but if you've done that once and you, you realize like there's more to life than this now, and I really don't want to spend the rest of my days talking about people like me, you know, um, I would rather have a better work-life balance. I'd rather have a life, period. Then I can't go back and grind it out in the minors and hope for my call-up to do major league announcing again. Just wasn't even a thing that I was interested in doing, not at that juncture of my life. Uh, the earnings potential wasn't there. The um, the travel was too demanding. And, there, and I mean, that's the kind of travel that like only high-end pharmaceutical sales reps would do, and they'd get paid way more to do that kind of stuff. So I realized, you know, I have aptitudes beyond this field, and I need to go figure out what they are and experience more of my life because it, is, it had been incredibly short-suited to that point. Your experience and, and commentary on the life in the minor league is lengthy. So this is an unfair question, but for those who haven't read it, can you briefly summarize, like, what – and it wasn't just you. It's, I mean, we know this. It's, it's a numbers game. If you have a better chance of getting hit by lightning mm-hmm. multiple times than you do making it on into the field of a major league stadium as a player, what is it about the, the minor league system uh, that sucks so bad? It's extortion. Um, I mean, it's a pretty simple answer. 
You know, uh, you have kids. Um, first of all, there's a lot of indoctrination. So as a child, you know, you, you find yourself kind of chasing this dream. I mean, your audience is probably pretty familiar with the struggle to become a professional hockey player. Correct. And the links that one's family and that player must go to in order to be even close to that, to get a shot at a shot at a shot, right? Yep. Um, so the same thing is true for baseball in the United States. It's something you need to start and specialize in at a very early age. The unfortunate thing about American sports psychology is that we believe for whatever reason that if you somehow diversify your skill set or your child's skill set, you're somehow cheating them out of hours that they could be used to beat out the competition to make it to this dream job, which is, which is struck by lightning multiple times level impossible, right? So we, we instill in kids that you need to chase this and somehow you're wasting your life or you'll, you'll die with regret and everything will be a, a shallow, vacant hole that you'll never crawl out of if you don't do it. Uh, that's bullshit. And it's just it's patently wrong and it hurts a lot of people. You know, when I speak about sports now and chasing the sports dream, I, I tell kids like, you, you are doing yourself a disservice by focusing on this sport exclusively to the detriment of your livelihood post sports lives, because look around you, statistically, most of you are gonna be that victim of this drying up and you're not prepared for it. Even college kids, I just spoke to Akron University's golf team. Um, this was last year and I said, you know, every one of you came here with a major disadvantage. And it was that you came here thinking that your life would end at the end of these four years, if you didn't make it out of here and turn pro. All of you wanna be pros. Most of you will not be pros. The fuck are you gonna do when you're not pros? Where do you, you know, are you ready for that contingency? Everyone else who didn't come here as an athlete is thinking about what they're going to do with the knowledge they get here for the rest of their lives and how they're gonna leverage it. That's a better goal. It's a better way to look at what you're doing here, but you're not looking at it that way. And then, Precisely one year later, Akron University's budget got cut and the golf team was completely dismantled. They no longer have a golf team. So kids didn't even make it their four years before they had to start facing that question. So let's fast forward, you know, you get into the minors. You've went through this system of, of basically telling you there is no life outside of making it. And you believe you must think that way. You don't put a limit on the amount of years you're going to invest in it before you pivot to a more prudent choice. Or if you like, I could say before you dump this stock, cut your losses and buy another, right? Because it really is about an investment of time. So this, this is so ingrained in the player, uh, really, that they will accept things like making less than a dollar per hour for 90-hour work weeks plus travel. Uh, they will accept things like not being fed after games, even though they're not getting made enough money to feed themselves and no place in their small minor league town is open besides fast food. And oh, by the way, you're getting tested for body fat. And if you're too heavy, you're going to have to work that off because that we don't want fat athletes. They never make it to the big leagues. You'll endure this and you'll believe that it's correct. And you won't even question that you're being extorted. I mean, for Christ's sake, I told a group of minor leaguers, every year minor leaguers write me and they ask me, they say, you know, the treatment's really bad. You wrote a book about it. It was great, by the way, really, really funny. 
love the thing you guys with the show is your boobs bit. That was, we're going to do that. Uh, what do you think we should do? And I'm like, guys, uh, you, all of you got fired this year, right? There's no baseball. The minor leagues are not a thing. You're not getting paid. What, what's not computing here? You guys need to organize. You have this entire off season to figure out where each other live, get together, organize. There are colleges. I mean, professors went through the same thing. Tenured professors, non-tenured professors, adjunct professors have ex experienced a similar thing. And they're very educated people with law backgrounds that would happily help you fight for a better life, but you won't do it because you're afraid that if you do, you'll blacklist yourself from this dream and it'll be game over. When really, you know, you might make the biggest impact on the history of the sport ever if you did that. That might be the only thing you're ever remembered for being a part of it. Statistically, it's probably more possible that that would happen than you being in an all-star game at the major league level. So please, you know, just look at the obvious and follow through. So to answer your question, the minor leagues are extortion. The treatment's horrifically bad. There's no money. And, and the last thing, there's no sympathy right? Most fans don't fucking care that this is what you're going through. They don't want to hear about it. It's become more palatable lately because other bigger names have made it a thing. But when I was in, no one wanted to hear that you didn't like the way you were, be you were being treated while you were living their dream job out every day. You know, you know, I have to go dig ditches and lay pipe and, uh, you know, I have to go uh, file somebody's taxes. You think that's fun? You know what I want to give to go out there in the ball field? I don't, you know, you can go <laughs> ahead, man. I'll, you can be me for a day. I'll be your Make-A-Wish Foundation guy. That's fine. Um, just give me your paycheck. We'll call it a day, right? Because one month of like a, a CPA's pay is essentially two years worth of minor league pay. So we'll make that trade. You want to rent time in my shoes? I will rent them to you. But yeah, it's that grossly lopsided and unfair. And also addendum, uh, the, the majors, the major league union gets to bargain away minor league rights in order to pad what they get. So all the way around, you're just getting bent over if you're a minor leaguer. And although my book doesn't go into like graphic detail about this, it's more story driven and you kind of pick it up anecdotally. Uh, that is the world of the minors. So a, uh, I'm not sure what the light is called on a runway, but whatever that light is has been shined on, I'm going to say sports culture, but certainly hockey culture in the last 12 months. And, and one of my guests over the last couple of weeks told us that, in his opinion, the bro culture in hockey, if you will, the um, racist, sexist, you know, anti-gay culture in hockey is, in his opinion, and he was a professional hockey player, worse in hockey than in other sports. Um, any comment to that? It's probably right. I've heard a lot about hockey culture. I mean, when I was working in Canada, uh, everything's hockey culture. I mean, that's one of the things I had to recalibrate for, you know, man, he really, he really hit a home run or versus man, that was really top shelf, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> it's just, there's like, there's these things that if you don't grow up in hockey, you don't catch some of the baked in vernacular to the Canadian culture. So, but we would trade stories, you know, and, and I have some, I have my fair share of bad, awful uh, treatment stories, but the hockey stuff would be like, you know, it was just eyebrow raising. Like, are you serious with that? Are you, you know, like these, 
um, these like girl, these fan, these like puck bunnies that would get on buses and just have sex with guys on the buses with all the other guys are like the, I mean, the, the level of, um, power that hockey wields, you know, and it's, it's like the infatuation with it to dispel reason and logic and even, even the consumer of it. Uh, is fascinating, let alone the the uh, locker room culture, which is a different kind of all in itself. But, you know, in the baseball world, there was hazing where he dressed up and stuff like that. There's also humiliation where there was like a, I remember a dildo with a whistle in it that people had to like do push-ups and blow the thing while they were, you know, it was, I saw that on videotape. Um, but that that kind of stuff is is common in a lot of locker rooms um, and to the extent that baseball is similar to hockey, I think hockey's got, uh, if, if you, I mean, I don't think there's any bragging right on this award, but I think they have the award for most brutal locker room experiences that I've at least heard of. Any idea why that might be? You know, I've, I've often wondered why, I mean, why hockey is or yeah. why locker rooms in general are the way they are. Oh, I, I know. I know why locker rooms are in general. Why do you think? Okay. Well, good. Good. <laughs> um, hockey. I'm. I'm not sure. I don't think I understand enough about hockey, but it is a hard. It's kind. Of, I think the contact sport uh, portion of it has a lot to do with it. I think that like physicality, machismo, um, physical force type stuff has a lot to do with it. Um, you know, I think some of the stuff that happens in uh, football locker rooms are probably more on par with some of the stuff that I've heard ha happen in hockey locker rooms. But I'm, if I venture a guess and I'm wrong, I, I would probably look stupid or foolish. So I'm just going to say, I don't know. I really don't, but it doesn't sound good. All right. I'm going to let you take a deep breath and uh, I'm going to pay a couple of bills here. Uh, what's the number one sign of a bad home security system, a home security system that's so complicated you never use it. That's exactly the type of system SimpleSafe has spent a decade trying to fight. SimpleSafe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24-7. Order online, open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, and your home is protected around the clock. It's that simple. Head to simplesafe.com backslash team and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee. That's simplesafe.com slash team. It feels good to fear less. Uh, as you know, having traveled through the minor leagues and some pretty awful hotels, I'm sure, uh, Sleep Envy is more than a mattress. Customize your mattress by taking the one-minute quiz. It ships in a box right to your door. Try it now for 100 nights in the comfort of your home. Shipping is always free. You're not satisfied. They pick it up and refund you. Use Press Row at checkout to get 25% off. 10% of their sales is going to feed the hungry during Corona. Go to sleepenvy.com. Enter the press into the code press row at checkout for 25%. And uh, you can save last but not least, uh, Toronto based jewelry designer, Vanderhoot Jewelry, V-A-N-D-E-R-H-O-U-T jewelry.com. Ability to customize your order exactly what you're looking for. Customer service is incredible. Happy to help you find that special gift for somebody. Uh, use the code sport20 at checkout to get 20% off your purchase today. Again, that's Vanderhoot Jewelry, V-A-N-D-E-R-H-O-U-T Jewelry.com. So um, 
I want to play some audio for you. So let's see if I can make this work. Go. And we are going to click on this. You can see we are not here very professional, but let's listen to this for a second and uh, get you to comment on it. Who shall not be referenced. We would show up and he'd be hung over at some of the broadcasts and he would aggressively make comments to some of the girls about him and his wife being in an open relationship. And he would, oh, watch, he would watch porn on his oh, laptop. God. We'd be mic'd up, you know, and he'd be watching watch porn on his laptop. Are like, you kidding me? Oh I'm my not, God. I'm not kidding you. And, and I remember um, being, this is that, this is like a great locker room talk moment. Yes. Like yes, 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 yes. Right. Where it's like, like, this is okay. Yeah. Like this is stuff that I would expect to see in, in the locker room. In fact, in every major league locker room I was ever in, there is one bathroom stall in every major league clubhouse bathroom that has usually a Tupperware container of porn. Right. Wow. <laughs> that was uh, unexpected in, in, in that interview. Um, kind of what, what caught me about that was the editorial around the interview was that you share stories that things were equally as bro-like in the broadcast world as they were in the actual baseball world. And uh, I wasn't... I was shocked. I'll, I'll be honest. Like I, I was shocked. I had no idea. Um, love to hear your thoughts on, on, on that, you know, that transition. Cause it doesn't sound like it was much of a transition for you. Um, well, you know, I mean, you have superstar athletes. Um, some of the, some of the guys that I broadcast with, they would be athletes and they'd be pretty successful athletes. Uh, I think the point I went on to make there, first of all, I mean, there is porn in every locker room. That's a fact. Um, I didn't expect to see it in the broadcast world, uh, but it did show up there too. Um, in one particular incident, it, there was, you know, I'm out on set, I'm sitting there, we're waiting for our next hit to come up. Um, you know, I'm in my suit. Uh, we're in front of fucking cameras. We've got microphones on, you know, and one of my, my co-hosts has a laptop open and it's porn. And it's not, it's not just, it's not just like, I got these pictures. It's, it was like a live feed from a fan that was performing things on herself for his amusement. Uh, and, and I'm just like, I'm, I'm honestly like, we could this not, I mean, this is like a, uh, this is, this is how entire careers are destroyed. This is how scandals happen. Right. And, uh, I went on to be, um, I went on to be so upset about it because you have to understand like who is Dirk Hayhurst? We talked about this beginning. Who is Dirk Hayhurst? He's nobody, right? So Dirk Hayhurst is this guy who has to like work his ass off and know all these stupid statistics. At TSN, I actually learned Photoshop and some of the heat maps that are used in as images in the broadcasts or heat maps that I made in Photoshop and gave to the broadcast like promo team to put in. So, so I'm cutting graphics and writing scripts and learning about whatever. 
And you'll be paired with somebody who's just like, they just get to show up and talk. And I'm just, I'm thinking, fuck you, you know, this is not fair at all, but fame is a fickle mistress, right? So that's just how it works, but I'll do the work if it gets me there, if it gets me to that contract, just like everybody else would, you know, I'll put my time in. It's not that bad. I know I can do that guy's job. I can get there, man. You know, I just have to keep doing this. So when I saw that stuff, you know, I'm incensed by it because it's not fair. It's like, I would never do this crap. And um, so I, I don't know what to do with it. So I go and I talk to like my manager at the time and I'm telling him, you know, this guy's looking at porn and, and uh, you know, the other co-host seems like it's just a normal thing. And I'm, it's definitely not normal for me. I'm scared. I got everything to lose. And uh, I just, I'm not comfortable with it, you know, what should I do? And the response is basically like, oh gosh, I am so, I'm so sorry to hear that. That's just awful. Um, wow, gosh, I'm sorry, Dirk. And I'm like, well, you know, yeah, I, thank you. I feel validated. Oh no, no, I'm, I'm not sorry because you're upset. I, I'm sorry because now I'm kind of obligated to say something and you're gonna get fired, not them, because you, you're nobody. You have the little contract, they've got the big contract. So if, if this is really an issue, I'm kind of like, you know, corporate law pretty much dictates I've got to take this to HR as your manager and voice this complaint. But can I ask you again, just for my own edification, are you really that upset about it, given what you know might happen? Oh, no, no, I'm, it was the, you know, I'm in locker rooms are like that. No, sports are like that, I'm fine. Dirk Ayers is fine, I am fine. Like, and I just dropped it. Um, you know, so uh, it, that, that stuff had just, that, that's how it was in some places. Um, not in every place. Of course, I wasn't around like long enough, but um, in some places it was like that. And, I, you know, like I'm, I'm cagey with naming names or pointing fingers. Smart people could probably figure it out, but I'm, I'm not going to like go hunting for that drama. But yeah, I mean... I guess to be to be honest, sports world in the media world of sports, the the higher levels of sports really shouldn't shock anybody considering what you've seen fall out. You know, um, why can't I think of the name? I should be of like Don Cherry, right? The Don Cherry got in trouble at some point. That like Don Cherry had been doing Don Cherry things the entire time Don Cherry was on TV. The world changed before Don Cherry changed, right? And that ended up him getting in trouble. It was like, I, I used to hear this, like um, the way it was described to me is that Dirk, I hear you, I hear what you're saying. I agree that behavior is not right, but it's just like the drunken salesman who beats all the records. Yes, this guy's a louse. Yes, this guy is sexually harassing people. Yes, he's looking at porn and it's offensive, but he's hitting his numbers. He's killing his numbers. As soon as he stops, then it's an issue, right? As soon as they stop. And so like that, that's the way it was described to me. And they're like, it's not fair, but that's just how this world works. So I, I, I don't know, man. And that was before I did my MBA, like after I did my MBA and I'm like, I learned all the HR stuff and like the, this, this is classic cover up bullshit, right? This is just, this is the kind of stuff that like, makes legal cases that take an entire system down. It was happening in real time and I had no idea. All I knew is I didn't want to lose my job, which is I think what a lot of people don't want to do. And when I heard like women say, you know, the Me Too movement started hitting, 
and women were speaking up, I'm like, fuck yeah. I mean, some of the stuff that was said about Ivanka Osmock alone, is, you know, she's a tough lady. I respect the hell out of the women that I worked with at Rogers. Um, they're, I mean, just tough. I know they had to put up with that shit. I know it got back to them. I even know that some of it was said directly to them. I know that. And for them to just soldier on and do a great job, I have all the respect in the world for these ladies because the shit that I went through just by being offend, offended at stuff that I thought should have stayed in the locker room and didn't, you know, like just that stuff in my time as a broadcaster was enough to let me know that these, these women aren't making this stuff up, right? It's, it's really there. So anyways, that's my, I, I'm just inventing now, but I got to calm down before I say something stupid. But anyways, yeah. So I hope that validates your point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, well, again, first of all, I come back to what we started with, which is you should be on the air. And I find it hilarious that the reason that you say you're not on the air is, or, or you're asked in that same interview, you know, about being able to tell the truth. Um, the world has changed a lot over the last, well, it certainly changed over the last three, four months, but in the last year, it's changed. Uh, last 18 months, it's changed, certainly as it relates to sports. Do you think, do you think if that situation happened again and you went to your boss at whatever network you were at at the time and had that same conversation, do you think the result would be the same today? Um, you know, I, I'd like to believe that it wouldn't be, but my, I think about that all the time, probably too much, you know, especially on bad days at the marketing company when I'm getting chewed out by somebody who <laughs> makes like pipe fittings or whatever. Um, you know, I think about that a lot. And I think to myself, like, if I was to do that, I'd still probably at some point end up getting canned because I'd brought a great shame upon the, you know, the organization or something. Um, and just to like save face all, every part of the cancer would be cut, you know, and I'd probably be branded as a guy that was, you know, didn't toe the line, wasn't good for whatever I was already. I mean, it, it, it's there's no coincidence that um like my career dried up shortly thereafter in a place that it should have lasted for a really long time right um i don't think that's coincidence i think that's just a mark it was a mark against me that i couldn't read the writing on the wall and play along um so even now i think like uh, i mean would i would i be vindicated sure if it happened now and i went out there and i said this stuff it would have been my word against other people. It would have played out brutally. I would have probably been drugged through hell for it. Um, you know, and, and I, and I'd still probably end up losing my job. I, I hate to say that. I think the fans and people around it might be more willing to believe me, but uh, I still think in the end, I'm, I'm working at a marketing company in Ohio. <laughs> so um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Oh. It's a, uh, it's an alternate reality I feel depressed about whenever I explore. So when these accusations come out and some of us are shocked and horrified, you aren't, especially as it relates on the media side. Oh, no, no not at all. Not at all. And, and the thing is, like, I think what I'm more shocked at, and this, I, you know, I don't know if this is a Canadian uh, fact as well as it is an American, uh, sorry, a U.S. fact. I know we're all Americans technically by <laughs> land proximity. I have yeah. to be careful with that one. But um, 
I don't know if this is if this is true for the Canadian side as it is for the U.S. side, but the blowback against the people who were blowing the whistle, you know, was fierce. Uh, fierce. It was fierce and completely unfair. And um, you know, like the the machines that go into motion to destroy you for speaking the truth. They're horrifying weapons of political war, horrifying, terrifying. Um, so, you know, like, I, I guess what everybody, to be honest, everybody has to make this kind of gut check, right? Where just like I did, like, am I really bothered by this? And let's play it out the other way. Let's say like somebody, some, some female uh, camera crew person is offended by it too. And that tape goes viral and I'm sitting there just playing along. What do I say then? Right. You know, like what I prophesied or was afraid of comes to happen. And I'm just sitting there complicitly. Obviously I know, and my reputation is destroyed. I mean, it was such a gamble. Um, I, I mean, like even thinking about it now, it's just one of those things that I've compartmentalized in my life just to kind of move on with. But I wish I had a better answer for you. I'd like to say that I'd be strong enough to follow that to the bitter end and die on it. But the end of it is death, right? It's career death. So you, you really need to know that you've got a safety net there, people who are going to back you, other opportunities, people who value that. And in that world at that time, they didn't. It wasn't a thing you, you were going to survive. Um, and I'm not even sure that everyone, yeah, I'd like to think everybody could survive that if there was truth in it, but I don't even think now everyone can survive it. I hope that that is the case sooner than later, though. You uh, you told me off air, kind of in a warning that you don't you're not current, so I shouldn't ask you. I told you I wasn't going to. How you think the Blue Jays are going to do this year? Curious, just as we start to wrap things up, what do you think of a sixty game season? I think that um, you know I think the game is just kind of gross anymore. Um, you know, players, I, I, I like the fact that there's no salary cap, but you see, I think my favorite thing to happen is when star players are like, it's just not worth the risk. I'm going to sit it out. Or these minor leaguers get nothing on donate some money. Um, the fact that they're playing right now, I, I'm not watching. It's, you know, it's, it's like watching inner squad. I've watched enough of that. That was my life. You know, I've thrown enough batting practice on and off you know, like in games and out to, to not be interested. Um, but in, as a, I love, I love the ideology of 60 games because I would love the season to have less games. I really would. I actually would love for all the minor leaguer guys to be on like ESPN, the Ocho or whatever doing skill tests where they're all doing home run derby contests and throwing at targets and like, you know, like going through obstacle course or playing like American Gladiator or something that to me would be more entertaining than watching 140 plus games, you know, like, <laughs> um, I think they should narrow it down. Um, the game can be boring at times. It really can. I wish people would just be honest about that. It can be boring. It's way too long sometimes. Um, I would like to see a quicker version of it. Uh, I think that in concept, it's good. But right now, after all the drama and all the like, you know, bitching back and forth about he said, she said money and contracts and who's right. And then this 
it really felt like from what I was watching that the ownership was trying to sneak stuff in now in preparation to have precedent to argue for an arbitration for the next contract later. And I thought that was just obvious and stupid. Um, so yeah, I think the road that we got to 60 games was so damaging in a lot of fans' minds that I don't know if 60 games really means anything to anyone. It doesn't feel like a real season. It feels like one that was hastily strung together to salvage some, a lot of uh, you know, possible economic loss. So to me, it's just, it's just not a season. I'm just writing the whole thing off. And you don't have, when was the last time you were at a baseball game? Oh man. I think, I think I had to take a client to a, like a minor league game. <laughs> One time uh, we went there and uh, you know, those moments suck for me. They're agonizing because, you know, they're just, they're like, everybody's just bombarding you with, Oh, you must've, Oh, what was it like? And you're just, you're just like a, uh, you're doing your song and dance, you know? Um, so yeah, you know, like my days consist now of, of stuff that it's very necessary. Um, it's a lot of brain drain. I do a lot of like data analysis and data architecture and other kind of stuff. Um, definitely uh, not your typical major league baseball player alumni. Right. Not, not happening. Right. And then uh, every once in a while, like uh, I'll cross paths with another baseball player who's like uh, who, who played longer and got that one contract. Right. And we'll catch up. We'll talk about the minors. They'll tell me how many franchises they just bought and I'll just go home and try not to kill myself. It's great. <laughs> no, it's uh, honestly, it's not it. I mean, uh, I think what the hubris that I operate by is like, um, I'm a really balanced person now. You know, I, I have a lot of skills that I've got to develop. I've been able to help a lot of people that I wouldn't if I still had this really big ego. Um, I've sharpened a lot of my analytical skills. Uh, I went through some great, great um, ego crushing uh, analysis when you have to do like the personality assessments and you get feedback on how people perceive you in the workplace. That was humiliating the first time it happened, but it's changed my life irrevocably, you know, working with others. And I think every player when they transition out should go through something like that because it, it kind of makes them aware. All these personality traits that you've honed to be a great athlete, they work in that world. Aggressiveness, hyperactivity, um, inability to let yourself uh, feel pain or be emotional, uh, negative self-talk, a lot of guys are addicted to off-the-shelf drugs or they medicate with alcohol or opioids or painkillers. I remember when I was in the minors, I basically just had a, a blank check for as many Oxycontins as I could gobble. Um, you know, I had sleeping pills and whatever I want. I didn't even have to see the doctor. The trainer would tell the doctor I'd get a script for it, you know. <clears throat> so this is all part of like the masculine mochismo survival of operations in the minors. Or, or in the majors. And when you you cycle out and you go into a regular job, you find that like this aggressive personality is threatening to a lot of people, especially females who find you loud and intimidating. Um, it's, it's true. I mean, and it's a real thing. Uh, and you are, you're, you, you're arrogant. You don't work well in a team. You don't take criticism well. You are a high performer, but you are often the maverick. Like all these things are disruptive. So learning that 
as hard as it was and humiliating as it can be at times and you're like, how did I go from the big leagues to a fucking cubicle? You know, those moments, right? Those moments, um, basically what happened is, is that you, you are reintegrating with the real world. And my baseball commentary got really good. Probably the best I'd ever, it had ever been when I had a really good footing in the real world. And I had a really good taste in my mouth still there from what it was like in the old world. And I was able to bridge that gap for people in a way that connected with the fans every day because I already had a good grasp of what it was like to be a player every day and tell that story. But now I had the other. I just didn't have a platform anymore and it went away. So, um, so yeah, so, you know, I have no regrets about it. Um, you know, there, I, unfortunately I do have this kind of like theoretical, what if, if I would have spoken up or said something about my one big shot. Um, but I'm, I'm still happy. And I think that's, that's kind of what we strive for. You know, we find happiness and balance where we're at and I've found it here and, uh, and I don't regret anything. So I know you didn't ask for any of that, by the way, I just kind of was talking to myself to just affirm it, but <laughs> well, yeah, as I said, I, I tend to just let my guests go and, um, look, like I can tell you that I'll say it again. You, you should be on the airwaves places other than just this. Um, it is fascinating listening to you. Um, it would be great in my opinion to hear your take on what is going on either with the Blue Jays or some other team in baseball, you know, we're, we're out of time. I'd love to take, get your thoughts on uh, the cheating that went on with the Houston Astros. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that I'd love to talk to you. So hopefully you're willing to come back at another time. I really hope that uh, someone calls you and you get back on the air. And if not, we will always be happy to host you here and, and talk about different issues. Uh, this has been awesome. Well, thank you. I'll tell you what, if you find me a job, I'll, I'll consider it. So, uh, <laughs> but this was a lot of fun and it was good therapy. So thank you for the opportunity. Well, we will, uh, we will try and have you again and, and I hope you and your family stay well and we all make it out of whatever this is we're going through right now. I'll, I'll drink to that. <laughs> thank you. And you too. Take right, care. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.